Good worship is confessional and it's aspirational. When we worship confessionally, sometimes we sing with our lips the things that we desire to be true in our hearts, but we know it's not so. And so we confess as we sing and we say, God, may these things that we proclaim to believe be true in our heart. And it's also aspirational when we sing. We sing in prayer that the things that we sing would, would be true for us in the future as well. Uh, thank you, Taylor. Thank you, uh, men, for leading us this, these last two days. It's been incredible. So I just want to say thank you to, the, to Taylor and the others for that. Um, so confession. I want to confess something to you men. Um, since we know each other a little bit, we spent some time together. I love musicals. I'm not going to... I'm just. It's, it is what it is. I love musicals. And since I love musicals, there are musicals playing in our house constantly. So um, our children regularly tell our electronic device, tell Alexa to play Fiddler on the Roof. That's my favorite musical. If somebody asked me, What's one, if you could only watch one movie for the rest of your life, what movie would it be? And it would be Fiddler on the Roof. Um, Fiddler on the Roof. Tombstone would be a very close second to Fiddler on the Roof. But, <laughs> but it'd be Fiddler on the Roof. And so um, it's very common for our children to walk around singing. You'd hear us singing, if I were a rich man. That's a popular one for us to sing because as, as pastors, we sing, if I were a rich man, right? Um, and like Reptavius says in, in Fiddler on the Roof, it's no great honor to be rich, um, but it's no great honor to be poor either, right? Uh, so that's a favorite in our house. Uh, Greatest Showman is another favorite in our house, so our kids routinely will enact songs and, and things that they see. Um, but probably, if you were to ask me what our favorite musical is overall for Jessica and I, I would have to say our favorite musical would be Les Mis. And if you haven't interacted with the story before, uh, I'll remind you it's a story of Jean Valjean, who is um, at the very beginning of the book um, and the musical, he finds himself in prison and he lives this life, uh, a good portion of his life in prison for nothing more essentially than stealing a loaf of bread. The musical is set uh, during revolutionary era France when there's great cultural and societal upheaval. And so Jean Valjean's released from his term of imprisonment and since he can't find any work because he's a convict, he goes into um, this little abbey and the only place that would take him in and it, during the evening, the, the, as the monk took him in, he t went around the house and he stole all of the silver that was in the abbey. And he escaped. And the abbey had nothing but this silver. That was like the most prized possession that they had. And so very quickly, the authorities caught up with Jean Valjean and they bring him back to the bishop whose name was Muriel. And they throw the silver on the ground and they throw Jean Valjean at the feet of the bishop. And they... The authorities look at Muriel, the bishop, and they say, what would you like us to do with this man? And Muriel looks at the authorities and said, oh, my brothers, you have this all wrong. This gift, uh, this was a gift for Jean Valjean. This silver was, is his in here. In fact, Jean Valjean, you, you left before you took the most important pieces. And so the bishop goes around and he collects the rest of the silver that's in the house. And he puts it in the knapsack of Jean Valjean and he hands it to him. And the authorities are dumb, are bewildered, and they, they leave. And Muriel looks at him, and he says, with this, I've purchased your life back for God. And so from that point on, the rest of the story of Les Mis is a story of a man whose life was radically transform, transformed by an act of grace. 
And because his life was radically transformed by this act of grace, his life was incredibly unshakable after that. Or another word I like to use for that is was indomitable. He lived a life that was impossible to subdue or defeat. And you see throughout the rest of his life, he encounters many hardships. There are people who don't think his life um, can count for much at that point. And you see people that would reflect maybe a legalistic heart at one point who think that you're always one way and you can never be another and, and their decisions lead them down a different path. But he's a man whose life was radically transformed by grace. And I want to tell you that the same kind of life that was possible for a man like Jean Valjean, who was transformed by a radical act of grace, is possible for you as well, men. It's possible that we would live lives that are impossible to subdue or defeat, that we would live indomitable, unshakable lives. So as we move through our final message this morning, in order for us to live an unshakable life, there are three things we must do. First, we need to know the unshakable one to live an unshakable life. We have to know the unshakable one. Secondly, we need to know who we are. And finally, we need to know what we signed up for. We need to know the unshakable one. We need to know who we are, and we need to know what we signed up for. A couple questions for you to consider as we move through the message this morning, this final message today. First question, when you think of Jesus, what picture comes to mind? When you think of Jesus, what picture comes to mind? Because how you picture Jesus gives shape to how you live life in relationship with Jesus. And if you have a defunct or maybe an immature picture or an incomplete or incomplete picture of Jesus, it's going to be very possible that the life you live with Jesus is going to be immature or incomplete. You see, some of you may have settled for a counterfeit version of Christianity even. And that's the second question is when you think of the Christian life, what do you think of? If you think of Jesus, what do you think of? Secondly, if you think of the Christian life, what do you think of? Some of you may have settled for a counterfeit version in pursuit of material things and status that you're asking God to bless. And you're just calling that the Christian life. So, to live this unshakable life, first we have to know this unshakable one. So look with me again. We'll return one last time to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at verse 10. So Paul is continuing to instruct his younger brother in the Lord. He said, this has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who's abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, why do we, question I get people, people have asked me before is, hey, why do you make such a big deal about Jesus? You see, I like to talk about Jesus when I have the opportunity to. Um, sometimes in the class that I lead, there becomes a point um, when I have a moment of clarity with somebody and I just bring Jesus into the equation because I, I love him and he's, he's radically changed my life. And so it happens sometimes like, man, why do you talk about Jesus so much? And Friends, I think it's because of who Jesus is and, and what he did. And Paul says it to, to us this way here. He says he's the one who abolished death and he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I think one of the most incredible scenes that we see in the, in the story of Jesus is when Jesus is coming up a road and then John the Baptist, who has his disciples with him, sees Jesus. And he tells his own disciples, look, behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. There he is. John the Baptist said, listen, you, you guys have been following me. I want you to go 
I want you to go and follow him because of who he is. Men, we follow him because of who he is. That he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I'll remind you again that sin is what gets in the way of the way things are supposed to be. God made our world incredibly beautiful and that beauty was badly, badly broken at the fall when our first parents believed the lie from Satan and that God didn't know what was best for them. And so they sinned and we've been living in brokenness and rebellion against God ever since then. But as we said in the first session, God made a way for us through the sacrificial system to have a relationship with him again. But that system was deficient since those offerings were made by sinners themselves and they had to be made over and over and over again. And then that's when Jesus comes in and he's the hero of the story. And he made a way through his very life, death and resurrection for us to have opportunity for a relationship with God again. So what's your picture of Jesus? Do you picture him as the one who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that you have a deep and abiding need for him in your life? We have to know that. We have to know who this Jesus is. And secondly, we have to know who we are. Look what Paul says in verse 11. He says, For this gospel or this good news, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher Paul tells Timothy that. He says, Timothy, this is who I am. I'm I'm a herald. I'm a proclaimer of this message. I'm an apostle. I'm a sent one. And I'm a teacher of this gospel. Men, I want to tell you today that in Christ, you are chosen, you're holy, and you're loved. Uh, Those things are irrevocable for you. You don't have to contend for those things. They're determined for you. I tell my kids all the time, I say, listen, you have my last name. You didn't do anything to earn that last name. You weren't there when you were created. You didn't do anything to earn it, and you can't do anything that will ever get your last name taken away from you. That was given to you. You will always be mine, always. When we put them to bed at night, um, our bedtime routine is, it's crazy, is what it is. It's it's madness. It's, It's madness. It's bonkers. I mean, it... You know, we started at 8 p.m., and we hope by 10 p.m. they're all asleep. Like, that's, uh, that's what it looks like. I, full disclosure, that's what it looks like. But most of the time, my four-year-old, she sleeps like a college student. She sleeps on the couch. Like, she just comes out, and she falls asleep on the couch, and I'm like, I'm so tired, baby. Blanket, peace out. We'll see you in the morning. Like, that's, that's how that works for the four-year-old. Um, but our bedtime routine is typically they do their teeth brushing and and getting their pajamas on and things, and then they go into their room. Uh, we live in a 1,400-square-foot house with all of the children, and so the four older ones all sleep in the same bedroom together by choice. They, they want to be with each other. Um, and so Jessica will go in, and she'll pray with them, and then I come in, and I give them a blessing every night. And the blessing I give to our children every night is I say, um, can you see my eyes? And I wait for them to all poke their heads out of their bunks and, and they say yes. And I say, can you see that I can see your eyes? They say yes. And I say, do you know that mommy and daddy love you? Yes. Do you know that we'll never love you more no matter the good things that you do? Yes. Do you know that we'll never love you less no matter the bad things that you do? Yes. Then we say, And I say, who else loves you like that? They say, God does. I say, even more than mommy and I? And they say, yes. 
And I say, rest in that love tonight. Rest in that love. And it's a beautiful moment that I get to share with my children every night. And I would love to tell you that every night it's an easy blessing to give to them. (laughs) And from their perspective, I think they would say every night it's not always an easy blessing to repeat. There was a, a, a... Something happened about a year and a half ago at our house where the kids were playing. I don't think there was any nefarious intent on behalf of my, my seven-year-old at the time, my oldest son. Um, he was chasing his sister through the house, his next youngest sister, who was five at the time. And he pushed her from behind, and she tripped and fell into the coffee table face first. And so she was screaming, and I, when I came on scene, there was blood everywhere, I thought that she like busted her nose up because she was bleeding, she was screaming, my wife was out of her mind, she was upset. Um, and so I, Levi ran off screaming because he's like, I'm a bad boy, I'm the worst boy, I don't belong here, I'm bad, you know. And I get, eat, I get Ruby and I sit her on the table and I start cleaning her up, her bloody nose up, and then I realize like, we've got a bigger problem here because one of her front teeth was dangling, like it was like hanging down by a thread. And uh, so then I was like, ooh, this is uh, not good, right? So uh, I had to call the dentist and explain the situation. And he was like, well, you have to come and see me you know, first thing in the morning. We got everybody calmed down. And so that night at bedtime, you know, when I'm giving the blessing, I have to tell Levi, you know, do you know that we'll never love you less no matter the bad things that you do? It's hard to say. And then he didn't, he said, no, I don't know that. Because I've, I've done a bad thing. And so at that point, I had to lay my hands on my son's head and tell my son, yeah, you made a mistake tonight, but our love for you will never change. It'll never change. You didn't do anything to earn that. Because if you could earn it, then you could lose it. And there'll be never anything you can do to have our love for you stripped away. Never anything you can do. And someday when you leave this house, we tell our children this, You carry my name with you when you go. And so I want you to think about that when you're out and you make decisions and people see you. you, It's just not about you. You carry me with you when you go. And our name stands for something now. It doesn't stand for what it used to. It stands for something different now, and you need to take that seriously. And men, we carry the name of Jesus with us where we go. And as blood-bought followers of the king who were wholly chosen and loved, we didn't do anything to earn it, and we can't lose it, but it's an honor that we carry his name with us where we go, the name of our father. And that's why we don't have a spirit of fear, men, because we carry his name with us. That's why we don't live oppressed, repressed, and depressed, because we carry his name with us. I think we struggle with that because we have a tendency to want to believe the three lies that the devil would try and sell us. We believe the lies of the world, the lies of the flesh, and the lies of the devil. We believe the lie of the world that says that we're not enough. We believe the lie of the flesh that says that we don't have enough. And we believe the lie of the devil who says that we're not good enough. Yet we know that in Christ, none of those things are true. We know that we're holy, chosen, and loved, and we carry his name with us wherever we go. And so if you find yourself, men, in a place where you don't feel like you're enough, you don't have enough, and you're not good enough, the remedy is to beg God to remind you of who you are. 
You can beg God and say, God, I want to hear from you. I don't remember what your voice looks like, and I want to know you again. Please help me to remember the truth of the things that I know I believe. Please remind me that I'm your blood-bought son. Please remind me that I don't have a spirit of timidity or fear, but I have one of power and love and of a sound mind. Because I need you, God. I can't do this without you. You have to remember who you are, man, and you have to fight for that every day. Because the world, the flesh, and the devil want to tell you that you're so many other things other than who God made you to be. You have to know the unshakable one. You have to know who you are. And finally, you have to know what you signed up for. I'm going to flip ahead to chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. At the end of this book, and again, at the end of the last correspondence that Timothy probably ever heard from his elder brother in the faith, a man who probably meant more to him than nearly any other man in his life, a man who we don't know if he ever saw his face again. He tells Timothy this, he says, Before God in Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, I solemnly charge you, proclaim the message, persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching, for the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, keep a clear head about everything. <laughs> I love that. Keep a clear head about everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. I was listening to a TED Talk a while ago and it was about the secret to happiness. And you know what the, the, comment, the commentator said? He said, you know what the secret to happiness is? It's lowering your expectations. <laughs> and I thought, man, that's, that's probably pretty true. And so for us men, to, when we know what we signed up for, we have to have the right kind of expectations. We have to have the right kind of expectations of, of ourselves, first of all. Paul tells Timothy here in this part of the chapter to keep a clear head. Keep a clear head. We live in an age in a world of distraction. There are so many things and messages and inputs and media that want to vie for your attention. And you have to remember to keep a clear head. One way that you can remember to keep a clear head is ask yourself, am I in a position to even influence change in this thing that I'm getting frustrated about or getting bent out of shape about? This thing that I'm seeing on the news, can I change that situation directly? If the answer is no, then you shouldn't really waste any of your emotional bandwidth on it. If you can't change it, don't let it bother you so badly. Paul tells Timothy to guard the good thing that's entrusted to him. I love that. To guard the good thing that's entrusted to him, to guard the gospel. And I want to ask you if you are valuing the gospel as the good thing that's been entrusted to you. I wonder if we don't because we don't sit at the cross enough. I, had a, I worked in a Christian bookstore when I was at seminary at a Lifeway store, and um, I called it the Christian ghetto, right? It's because every, everyone who came in proclaimed to be a believer. And a conversation I normally had with somebody when they would come in, and I probably wasn't a very good employee at this point, um, but they would say, I'm looking for something that will really help me grow in my relationship with God. 
And I would just take them right to the Bible section, right? And I'd say, awesome, we have just the thing for you, right? And I'd walk them to the Bible section, and I would ask them some questions, because I would legitimately wanted to help them. I said, well, have you read about God's Word before? What kind of church do you, are you normally attending? You know, yada, yada, yada. And so then I would make a recommendation for them based on some questions that I would ask. Oh, I think this would be a great Bible for you. Um, here's why. And sometimes that was great. The people walked out happy with, with a brand new Bible, and I was happy that I gave them a copy of God's Word. Um, but very often it was the case that someone would say, no, I'm actually looking for something more than that. I'm looking for something a little bit more. And over time, I already confessed that I have a tendency to be cynical. Um, that's why I wasn't a good employee. I would say, well, friend, I just have to tell you, there are a lot of great books in this store, but there's nothing that's going to help you grow in your relationship with God like God's word will. And I think one of our tendencies to to believe that we need something else is that we don't sit at the cross enough and we don't think about what happened there. We don't think about what that means for us, that the Savior of the world gave his life for us, that the God of the universe humbled himself to the point of death and death on the cross. So are you sitting at the feet of Jesus enough? Are you, are you guarding that thing entrusted to you? You have to have the right expectation of yourself. And secondly, you have to have the right expectation of others. <sighs> If you don't know, I want to, let me be the first to tell you that people will let you down. People will disappoint you. They'll surprise you at times, but people will let you down. People inside the church will let you down, and people outside of the church will let you down. But again, as I shared before, we don't have any other mission but to be vulnerable and to walk forward in faith, knowing that, yes, while people will let us down, God is still faithful. God is still faithful, and it's our responsibility to walk in the midst of fallen people as fallen people ourselves and point people to the one who will never fail us. Right. And so we walk forward with that firm expectation of ourselves and our firm expectation, that, that great expectation of others, and we also need to have the right expectation of this work that we do together. Back in chapter 1, in verse 13 of 2 Timothy, he says, hold on to this pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, and to guard that good thing entrusted to you. In chapter 2 and verse 3, he tells us to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And again, in chapter 9, he refers to suffering, and, and in chapter, excuse me, in verse 9, he refers to suffering, and in verse 10, he refers to the enduring he must do for the sake of the gospel. I remind you of all that to remind you that godliness will be persecuted in this life. Godliness will be persecuted. Now, <laughs> on a side note, there's a huge difference between being persecuted for being a Christian and being persecuted for being a moron, right? <laughs> Don't confuse the two. Don't confuse the two. You know, if you make an idiot out of yourself because you're being an idiot, that's not Christian persecution. Don't confuse the two. But with that being said, suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. And people get confused about that throughout Scripture. In fact, Jesus' very own disciples got confused about that. You remember, um, Jesus was walking with his disciples, and it says very clearly in Matthew that at one point things changed, and he said from then on he began to tell them how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And so the entire tone of Jesus' journey changes at that point. And immediately before that, Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And Peter says to Jesus, well, you're 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then Jesus tells them, I'm going to suffer and die. And you know what happens immediately after that? Peter says, well, time out, Jesus. You know, you're not, that's not gonna happen here, right? I won't let that happen over my dead body, Jesus, is what Peter says to Jesus after he tells him he's gonna suffer and die. And then Jesus goes from calling Peter the one that, behold, man didn't reveal these things to you, but God, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, goes from that to telling him, get behind me, Satan, because you, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. You see, Peter's not stupid. It means a lot of things, but he's not stupid. And so he sees, well, if Jesus is saying he's gonna suffer and die, then that's probably what that means for us as well. So it's been the case throughout history that people have been confused about what this life with Jesus looks like. And Paul knows that because he's reminding Timothy even in this book that some people are going to soon fall away. Some people have deserted me. And Paul's saying, I'm preparing to die. I say all that to wonder, men, how often we've attempted to get in the way of what God's plan was simply because we weren't willing to suffer. Are we attempting to get in the way of what God's plan is because we're not willing to suffer? Yet suffering is one of God's primary teaching tools for us to grow in our relationship with Jesus. There are really two primary teaching tools. It's suffering and life in community. And while there are a myriad of reasons why I think God allows suffering, I'll give us three today. I think, first of all, God allows suffering in our life because it gives us a meaningful platform for ministry with others. If you've walked through difficult things in your life, and if you've lived long enough, you have, but even young men, if you've experienced divorce or if you've struggled with addiction of a various kind, that gives you an incredible platform to walk with others because when you encounter another person on the journey, you can say, friend, I know the road that you're on, but I've been this way before, so why don't you take me by the hand and we'll go to see Jesus together. I know the way. I know the way, so let's go. This, this road seems tough and difficult, but I've, I've traveled this path before, and I'll go with you. Let's go together. So God allows suffering because it gives us that platform for ministry. I think the second reason God allows suffering in our life is because, as the words of my kid's storybook Bible say, it makes us long for a time when all the sad things come untrue. So when we suffer, we say, oh, Jesus, this world is not my home. And I know that there will be a day when everything that's sad will be untrue again. I know you're going to make it right at the end. I live in a world that's not right, and you're going to make it right. And so when we suffer, we long for eternity. But finally, when we, and most importantly maybe, when we suffer, God allows it because when we do so, we look like Jesus who suffered on our behalf. We look like the wounded healer. And so when we suffer, we begin to walk with a limp, and we become a lot more accessible, and we look a lot more like our Lord when we suffer and we do so graciously. Man, this doesn't mean that we pursue suffering, but rather we see it as one of the instruments God uses to shape us as a tool ready to do his work. I tell you all that to remind you or ask you or challenge you that some of you may have replaced biblical Christianity with the American dream, and you get frustrated because God isn't blessing your plan for your life. Man, I want to tell you as clearly as I can that Jesus didn't die to be the patron saint of your American dream. He didn't die for that. He's not looking for you to sprinkle a little blessed water on whatever it is that you want to do with your life. He didn't die for that. 
So what is it that causes you the most frustration? If it's mainly the thought of not having a possession, a job opportunity, or a title, you need to do some serious thinking about who or what is actually the Lord of your life. You know, it really is easy easy to get caught up with the question of what God's plan for our life is when really the bigger question is what God's plan is, period, and how our lives filter into what God's plan is. Listen, God has his purposes and his ways, and he's going to fulfill his purpose in this world. He's going to do it. The question is if we're going to be involved with him in that or not. I love, uh, I've I've really grown to love um, Pastor Todd and uh, knew him well and uh, respected him in the last two days of living with him have been amazing and great. Um, And I believe that God desires to use First Family Church to reach Ankeny and to send people to other parts of the world that need need Jesus. But here's the truth. God was going to send people to other parts of the world that need Jesus, and if he wasn't going to use First Family Church to do it, he was going to use somebody else to do it. But you, First Family, and you, Iowa Baptists, you have the opportunity to get in on that good thing that God is going to do. That's one of the saddest things in the history of God's people, isn't it? When he gave them a land of promise and they sent spies in and they came back and two of them, Joseph and Caleb, they were, they were like, we, Joshua and Caleb said, we can do this, guys. We can do this. And the other ones doubted and they faltered and they failed. And so then God said, you know what? I'm still gonna give the blessing to my people, but it's not gonna be you. And so they got to spend the rest, of the rest of their lives, the next 40 years, being led around while all of them died so that God could give their blessing to the generation that came after them. And when I read that story, I say, Lord, may it not be. May we not miss out on what you're doing because we weren't ready to go. Because God's going to do what he's going to do. That's not at stake. The question is if he's going to use you and me or not. <laughs> If, you, if you're looking for things to read, I encourage you to read another old dead guy named G.K. Chesterton. And one of my favorite books of his that he wrote is a book called Orthodoxy. It's a pretty quick read, um, but I encourage you to pick it up and read it. And in, in Orthodoxy, he has this sex, session where he talks about how ridiculous it is for someone to think themselves to be God. And he says, how, how pitiful all of creation must be if it must, they must take their hope in you if you are God. He says, if you're being honest, wouldn't you want for the hammer of a higher God to come and smash your your cosmos into smithereens? And so that would allow you to look up as well as down. And then he ends with this line in that passage, and he says, your world becomes so much bigger when you become a smaller part of it. Your world becomes so much bigger when you become a smaller part of it. I say all that to say this, friends, that God desires to take your dreams and replace them with better ones, his dreams. That's what he wants for you. In the book of Esther, he told Esther that she was appointed for such a time as this, and he told Joseph that what God intended, that what others intended for evil, God intended for good to bring about the salvation of many. I want to challenge you, men, that God desires to raise you up for such a time as this to bring about the salvation of many. Can anything be greater than that? Is there anything better you could give your life to than that? To be a part, be a part of this glorious mission of seeing a lost and dying world reconciled back to the God who created them? There's no greater mission for you to give yourselves to than that. Hmm. Man, there's no higher calling and privilege than to be a follower of Jesus. 
so I want to challenge you not to shrink back in cowardice or timidity from that calling. I want to challenge you not to run away in selfishness and fear, as many are prone to do. But rather, I challenge you to come with me and embrace this great adventure with a heart full of love, with hands full of grace, and with minds full of that mixture of humility and strength that only God can provide. So as we come to a close with this message, I want to ask you again, what is your picture of Jesus? And what's your picture of the Christian life? What are you allowing to shape those things that are far away from what God's intent for you would be? And a couple takeaways for you again, and they're going to sound very similar. I challenge you to move in closer to Jesus. Wherever you are in relationship to Jesus, just move in a little closer. You don't have to, Matt, you don't have to have all your questions answered. Maybe you haven't been walking with Jesus very long, or maybe you've been walking for a very long time. But wherever you are, move in a little closer. Move in a little closer. I challenge you to beg God to let you grab a hold of what his plan is. Beg him. Beg him. I encourage you to say, God, what do you have for me? Because I don't want to waste it. And finally, again, I'll just challenge you not to waste your life. You, you have only so many days left, man, and we don't even know how many they are for us personally, but we know we have less than we did the day before. So don't waste that. Yes. Don't waste that. It's been a great honor and privilege to have the opportunity to open God's word with you, man, over the last two days. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we desire to move in closer to you. Help us to remember what a high calling and privilege this walk with you is. God, we don't want to waste it. We don't want to waste it. God, forgive us when we've asked you to be the patron saint of our American dream. <laughs> forgive us, Lord, when we've tried to replace your plans and purposes with our own. May it never be. Lord, show us what you're doing. Show us the land of promise that you're calling us to and help us not to shirk back in fear or cowardice. Lord, help us to live life as men whose lives have been radically changed by the gospel. We love you, Lord, and we pray for these things today.